um, I think it's been three weeks. I mean, time no longer flows in a linear fashion for most of us, I think. (laughs) That's fair. It's been 220-something days since March. Uh, (laughs) Shall we say? Since uh, March began and never ended. Yeah, uh, that's about it. Um, Well, I think, if nothing else, some life updates are in order because I I finished my boot camp. Mm-hmm. Um, I got into grad school, which I don't think we yes. have to Which actually is, is, is a good sign of how long it's been because um, I got my acceptance over a month ago. Mm-hmm. So we haven't... Uh, yeah, which means probably we haven't spoken for a month on the podcast. So, oh, jeez. Wow. <laughs> I, I think... Well, time flies when yeah. you're... Not having fun? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Um, I mean, you know, you, 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 you'll soon realise just how weird time becomes when you're in grad school. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, in, in my case, I'll be doing it part-time. Mm-hmm. So I will still have a job, which I do not currently have. <laughs> mm-hmm. yep. So um, that, will have to be, that will have to be figured out. I mean... So this is the other thing. So I, I just finished the boot camp. I'm going back to TA the boot camp. Um Fun. and then that will at least this iteration of the boot camp will be until December and then school starts in January, but mm-hmm. by then I will need a different job or possibly yep. the same job if it allows me to pay tuition. But yep. uh we will see. Um so, yeah, I will be studying computer science, which is a very strange uh, prospect somehow. It's almost uh, a full circle kind of thing since uh, secondary school days. I mean, yeah, it, 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 it is. I mean, I actually went back to my, to, to the, to Lavagon Singapore yesterday mm-hmm. because we were discussing um, a product that we want to build. Um, so... I was chatting with some of my, I was chatting with some of my course mates, right? And, you know, um, okay, so here's the interesting thing. that This this kind of ties into something that I kind of want to talk about as well, but we were kind of discussing, like, you know, academic interests, university life, and things like that. And um, I mentioned, because somebody was asking me about linguistics and how I got into it. And I mentioned that actually, at the time that I took my first linguistics class, I was deciding between computer science and linguistics. Mm-hmm. Because uh, at NYU, if you're a film student, you have to take at least two science or social science courses, which is, you know, sure. just your typical distribution requirements. And yep. um, I was deciding between those two, com science or linguistics, and... Mm-hmm. I did have some prior programming experience, so I wanted to take the test that would allow me to go straight to Intro to Comp Science. Because there is a class Intro to Computer Programming, and then Intro to Computer Science. So, Intro to Computer Programming does not require any prior experience. And it is a prerequisite for Intro to Comp Science, unless you take and pass the entry test for Intro to Comp yes, Science. Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah. and um, 
it the entry test is actually pretty interesting because it is it was done completely on paper. <laughs> Just oh, quite experienced well, writing code on well, paper. Huh. Yeah. And um they offered it in three languages. So you could take the test in um C Java, okay. or Pascal. Pascal. <laughs> Pascal is a bit archaic, is it not? Um, I I mean, I it was twenty the twenty twelve actually. So when I don't Pascal know. had already been going out of fashion, yeah, for yeah, a fair but, bit of time. Yeah, but it is academia. They probably had the test lying around and just <laughs> sure, know. yeah. But I mean, um, that is an interesting choice, Pascal. Yeah. And that's I mean, also interesting because I don't believe. NYU uses Pascal as a teaching language. Right. Um, I think most of the core ComScience stuff is taught in Java and C, as it is with... Which makes sense. It, yeah, in a lot of schools now. So um, I don't do any of those. I mean, my prior programming experience had, been, had not been in any of those languages. So right. I basically just like studied up a bit on... C++ syntax before I did mm-hmm. the thing. Um, and then most of the questions, actually, to be fair, were on... They were on logic rather than on syntax. Right? right? So yeah, that makes they sense. are looking for... Yeah, they're looking for this kind of thing, like how many times will this loop run? Sorry. Type, type things, basically. Yeah. Yeah, yep. and... Yep. Um, Which I think I, is also what, you know, the, I mean, I'm doing a, a programming course in Python right now, and mm-hmm. a lot of the questions around, uh, you know, from the tests are more or less that, right? It's, it gives you yeah. a sample piece of code. It goes, you know, will this break? Is this an yeah. infinite loop? How many times will this cycle around? Yeah, because to be fair, the syntax is, is a trivial aspect of it. And there is also yes. the fact that no matter how experienced you are, you are going to have syntax errors in your code, but what kind <laughs> of, it's just the fact of life. But what really distinguishes somebody who is comfortable with the kind of work needed in a com science class is the ability to, I don't want to say to think like a computer, but mm-hmm. to understand how computers are going to process that thing that you've just written. Yes, right? correct. And I mean, the, 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 apropos of nothing, a, a colleague just posted on Twitter a couple of days ago, you know, there are three things in life that are, that are certain. Uh, death, taxes, and court breaking. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, of course, it's a given. So, I was kind of telling my my classmates, right? Actually, the deciding factor between you know me ending up in the com science class or the linguistics class for my distribution requirements was that after the test, right? I mean, the test itself was fine, but then there was this moment, there was this episode when. Um, you, you were just two undergrads sitting in a mm-hmm. in a tutorial room, right? It was yeah. otherwise empty, and then like at one point, somebody opened the door, and then there were these three grad students outside, looking kind of lost. They stuck <laughs> their head in, and they're like, "Is this where the God, God knows what lectures is happening?" And then we looked at them, and they looked at us, and then they were just kind of like, uh. Okay, and then they just left. Right. And after the, the test, this, I was taking the test with one other undergrad. And um, after the test, we were in the lift lobby about to leave the building. 
And I was just trying to make conversation, right? I'm just trying to be like, hey, how do you find the test kind of thing? And it was very awkward because it was kind of clear he didn't really want to talk. And he was just like, oh, it's okay. Uh, mm. Easier than I expected. <laughs> and like that was the end of the conversation. Wow. Okay. And I was like, well, I think I'm going to be miserable if I'm going to spend a semester in a class full of people. Uh, non-communicative. <laughs> like this. Yeah. Yeah. Non-verbal people, basically. Yeah, so... Which, I mean, is it is interesting and it is, you know, sort of uh, a broader trend you see with uh, uh, sort of, you know, the, the, the comm science culture. Right? Yeah. You know, you go to a larger, a comprehensive university and you do encounter comm science majors and you know, to a large extent, they are like that. I think that's... Without going into over, you know, overly generalizing sort of uh, behavioral traits, but it does seem to be a fairly common... Uh, occurrence in the computer sciences at least people yeah, who it, have it is a difficulty. stereotype right yeah. and yeah. on the one hand it's uncomfortable to kind of say well yeah they are of course they would be like that because that's right. clearly not that's not fair right and but which is not to say that everyone is as aggressively antisocial as say Richard Stallman oh my god okay yes which is a different story <laughs> altogether I have met him all right, and okay. he is aggressively antisocial all right I, I'll tell the story later Okay. Um, so, for me, I was just like, um, I can't, I don't think I can deal with this, like, on a mm -hmm. social, from a social point of view. Um, yeah. So, I enrolled in a linguistics class because it was, I think, like, the second week, mid-second week. I can't, I can't remember. For sure, it was after the first week already. Sure. Uh, and I enrolled in the only linguistics class that fit my schedule that I was interested in at mm -hmm. the time, which was uh, Indo-European syntax. Which Fun. Was like, uh, which was like, uh, it's, you know, it's an elective class. It yep. doesn't, it had no prerequisites, but it also, it, it it's kind of arcane, let's face it, right? <laughs> Well, so, I mean, not so much for us, right? Because, you know, we do grow up surrounded by Indo-Malayan languages. Okay, so here's the thing. The here's the thing. The class name in the NYU system was Indo-European mm -hmm. Syntax. I signed oh. up for it. It was the only one that fit my schedule, right? I've, okay. I've told you this story, but I don't think it's yes, on you the have. air. Yeah. yeah. And I walked into class in the second week, mm -hmm. and they already had, had one week, so they just like, went straight to it. And oh, um, yes, I, okay. yeah, so I'm, you know, I deep dive. I, I go into class and I say, curve. yeah, I go into class and I say to the professor, I'm like, hey, I'm, um, I just signed up for this class. I didn't come last week, right? I'm new to this. And he says, oh, okay, great. And here's the, here's the, here's the syllabus. So I took the syllabus and at the top of it, it says Proto-Indo-European syntax, <laughs> which <laughs> is very different because. Um, if you are, you know, if you're familiar with linguistics or historical linguistics, it, yep. the, all languages, right, belong to a language mm -hmm. family of some kind, right? Unless, yes. of course, they are, they are um, language isolates. But I think yes, the, the principle still holds true, right? That, you know, they are kind of in a family of their own. So, mm -hmm. um, Very taxonomical, in a sense. It, very <clears throat> it very is. much so. 
it's I mean it, it, it is, is related to it is it is very related to you know how we distinguish species right it's like yeah and, biological and, systematics and taxonomy basically. yeah and um and you know historical <clears throat> linguists grapple with this problem as well right like mm-hmm. how do you really know that how do you decide that a language <coughs> because it's not a trivial question because no, if not. you're just going to say these two languages look similar they must be related that is not you, you can't say that right like I mean, on this what is a basis? huge problem in biology as well right it's that look okay you know yeah. if i say let's take number of fingers yeah. Right. And this is a famous essay that Stephen Jay Gould wrote, who's a, you know, okay. he's the, the late great evolutionary biologist from Harvard. Mm-hmm. Um, it's called Eight Little Piggies. And oh he, my God. It's the title of his book. Um, okay. but, uh, the book was a collection of his essays, and the essay, the title essay is called Eight Little Piggies, which I think mm-hmm. he wrote for either Discover Magazine, one of the popular science magazines. And it's a really good essay on um, you know, the difficulty in selecting traits that are evolutionarily meaningful for reconstructing evolutionary history. Yep. Right. It's so, the same thing in, in his that's right. Yeah. So, but yeah. So eight little piggies refers to the nursery rhyme, right? Three little piggies. Mm-hmm. Or you know, went to market. This little piggy went to market, this little piggy. So it's looking at the number of fingers, the number of digits in the fossils. Okay. And okay. how you know, for a long time it's been assumed that pentadactyly having five digits was sort of the mm-hmm. epitome of evolution. This is going back to, you know, sort of the Jacob's ladder period where people thought that evolution was sort of moving uh, organisms toward a higher ideal, a right, platonic yeah. ideal of sorts, right? right? But then when we actually look at the fossil record, we see a plethora of num- of digit numbers from, you know, from up to eight, which is what eight little piggies. Um, right. and, and that, you know, you see that as tetrapods or four-limbed organisms evolved out of the sea into land, at this very initial stage of the colonization of land, evolution experimented with a whole bunch of, you know, different digit numbers, Mm-hmm. Right, and five just became the most common, probably by right. accident. Right, and even if you look at animals today, right, we do see deviations from pentadactyly, and this is something that he was, you know, that he mentioned. That I was like, oh yeah, I never no- noticed this. Frogs, frogs, mm-hmm. I believe have. Uh, let me look up a picture just in case I get it wrong. Um, they have different numbers of limbs on the forelimbs and hind limbs, number of digits. Oh, so. Yeah, no one has. I mean, very few people notice this. I think the four limbs, they have four digits, and then the high okay. limbs have five digits. Okay, okay. Right. So it's not you know. So pentadactyly is not universal. Even though right. we see most mammals have five digits, uh, birds have five, but with two reduced. Right. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, okay. and so on and so forth. Right. Interesting. So, yeah. So, I mean, you know, the difficulty in selecting traits, basically. There's lots yeah. of spurious characteristics about both languages and species yeah. that could t- potentially lead to sort of, you know, misinformed reconstructions of the history and ancestry. Yeah. I mean, we are already, like, deviating very far from... We've, we've Sorry. branched off... And I mean, it's like, if you imagine the main thread of what we are talking about, we have gone several branches off off of that. But it's fine. I mean, that's... That's kind of what the whole point of monkey mind is. So Welcome the, to our very damaged brains. I mean, yes. I mean if you're wondering, by the way, if you're wondering like when we are when like we meet up for like lunch or dinner or whatever, like this is exactly how our conversation flows. Right? It yep. just it doesn't stay in one place. <laughs> so the thing about historical linguistics and like proto Indo European syntax, like why would it matter that the class is 
Proto-Indo-European syntax versus Indo-European syntax. I mean, obviously, if you are going to attend any class that's about Indo-European syntax, right? So modern Indo-European languages would be English, German, yep. Dutch, um, Norwegian, Swedish, um, uh, okay, not Finnish, but um, then, of course, the Romance languages, French, Spanish, Portuguese, um, Romanian is an interesting case. Uh, okay. Actually, Slavic languages are Indo-European as well. So, you know, Russian, um, mm. Russian, Ukrainian, Slovenian, Czech, you know, that that whole branch. And then, of course, all the way down to it is Indo-European, right? So the Indo part of it is it includes, you know, Persian, Farsi, um, yep. um, Hindi, Gujarati, blah, blah, blah. Not Tamil. Tamil is Dravidian. Oh, right? Okay. Yeah. That's right. Yes. Yeah. And um, so it is a very wide geographical range. Right. And of course, when you take a class called Indo-European Syntax, you expect to learn about the syntax of all these modern Indo-European languages. And of course, yep. they will have some commonalities from, from the fact that they have a common ancestor. Right, and yes. the way that it was discovered was that a linguist in the 1800s, I want to say, I can't remember the timeline of this. Um, he learnt a bunch of he learnt a bunch of different languages. I mean, it's arguable whether this is a result of colonialism, but colonialism definitely enabled it, right? So he right. was, you know, classically trained in Britain. He learned his English and his French and Spanish and blah 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 blah. Then he travelled to India and then he. Um, was looking at some of, I believe Hindi or maybe Sanskrit was was the language that was being looked at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then he's like, actually, there are some commonalities and not only are there commonalities, they dis they display a, a pattern. Yes. So that's actually the kind of like the key, right? Which is mm -hmm. that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those things that when you are, when a field is well-developed, you take it for granted, but it's not obvious until someone says it and produces the evidence for it. So he, Yes, there needs to be that fundamental insight that you know correct. drives uh yeah. Correct. So he demonstrated like a consistent pattern of, of change. Right. Right. Um like some some you know, a series of, of words, for example, that begin with this sound in English begin with that sound in Spanish yep. and begin with that sound in Sanskrit and they yep. mean the same thing or their semantics, their meaning, like you can semantically kind of trace the, you can trace the evolution of the semantic meaning. So I don't have an yes. example at hand because um, my interest in Indo-European syntax is very... <laughs> uh, is is very um, constrained to Romance and Germanic, so I can't give right. you an example from, from, you know, from Sanskrit or from whatever. But the class covered that full range. Okay. Yeah. Bloody hell. So, <laughs> yeah. Deep end to so, be going in from. Yeah. So Proto-Indo-European syntax, right, would imply that um, this is a class that deals much more with the historical side of it. How did it yes. actually evolve? Yes. <laughs> okay. And what is proto? A lang what's a proto language? A proto language yep. is a language for which there is no 
attestation, right? But we can reconstruct it and we know that it must have looked something like, like this. So yes. an example of this is if you take French and Spanish and you apply historical techniques, historical linguistics, like language reconstruction techniques to those two languages, you get Latin. And Latin right. is attested, right? We have evidence of Latin and how it looked like. But if you take, say, Latin and Sanskrit, you get, and you recon you do the reconstruction, You, I mean, this in all these cases, you do the reconstruction and you get the... Um, the l most recent common ancestor, right? So then you get Proto-Indo-European. Mm -hmm. And we have no, we have evidence of Sanskrit, we have evidence of Latin, but we don't have evidence of Proto-Indo-European. And yeah. so it is a reconstructed language and then we put Proto in front of it. Right? Yeah. So, um, <coughs> Sorry. When, if a class is called Proto-Indo-European syntax, <laughs> you're just learning like what this reconstructed language must have looked like versus looking at what this, you know, what its modern and, uh, descendants look like. Yes, yeah. correct. And this was my first Wonderful. linguistics class. Oh, deep and end. Yeah, and too. so after, you know, after the class, it's, it's just your, your typical thing like when you walk into class on week two or three, right? You do the thing where after the class, you speak to the professor. You're like, what did I miss? And the professor was very accommodating. He was like, oh, you know, um, do you, I'm willing to catch you up to what we've, where we are now. And I mean, oh, it was, it was, um, it, it's, it's not, I, I didn't miss too much, let me say, but I, I told him this is the first linguistics class I've ever taken. <laughs> And so he said, okay, you know what? Let, let's just, um, I'll, I'll just teach you enough linguistics to... Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, on the what spot. What a lovely to, person, though. Yeah, he was... He was um, Out of he curiosity, was, was this professor good. teaching track or tenure track? Tenure. That's even yep. more impressive, actually. Yep. Holy shit. For yeah. someone who has research commitments to just sit down and, you know, okay, let's, you yep. know, let's do. That's... So, Wow. I mean, so, I mean, we are, we are going even further away, but... We are. But actually, um, how I came upon, you know, how I... One of the factors in deciding to take this professor's class was when I was researching universities, which is even way before... This is like years before I went to NYU, right? Huh. Um, you know, you buy like the college guides. And, I mean, yep. okay, that, that was like, what, 2008, 2009? Jeez, Right? Yes, so, I think. Yeah. God, that was a long time ago. Correct. And this is before everyone went to the internet for everything. Yeah. You still had books, like reference books that were published every year and then you bought them. So, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry books went out of fashion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can only so, apologize. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I had this book. I mean, I had a, a few like college guides, right? Yeah. Um, that basically is like, you know, what what each university is like, what student body is like, what you can expect, and things like that. So, well, although this does tie this back to something Princeton that the Princeton guide, right? Not the college guide. I think the college... There's the Princeton Review. Yeah, Princeton the Review. college board, right. I think, has its own book. Yes, but I don't but think then, that one was very informative. I, this is this is me recollecting things that happened yeah. uh, almost two decades ago. Jeez Louise. Yeah. 
so there are there are a bunch of books in this in this series. Like there's actually a, yeah. an interesting one called um, Colleges That Change Lives. Yes, and that is about smaller liberal arts colleges, yeah. uh, which often have a very distinct personality. And yes. um, the thing about those schools is that you really have fit is super important. Yes. Yeah, and so it's a book that's just exclusively about um, culture. Culture, yeah, the culture of liberal arts colleges, of specific liberal arts colleges. Yes. Um, the one that I got, I don't remember what it was called, of uh, association that wrote it. I will say the the group that published it is conservative leaning. So ha! okay. <laughs> so what they wanted to to do was to publish a um, a guide. Right for, um, basically for students who didn't want their education to be, y- you know how it is, right? Like now, there's this whole like um, liberal agenda in the universities. Yeah, so yeah. they didn't want they didn't want it to be overly influenced. I will say, I think, um, it's kind of unavoidable that. They, when you read this, it's not going to be objective. There's there's no way. <laughs> there's no way at all. Um, sure. But I think, like, from what I've described, I would say it is a bit less partisan than you see today, which is actually right. kind of upsetting if you think about it. <laughs> so, like, under the NYU entry, right, so they it's something like, you know, of course this is a super liberal-leaning school, but but professors are often, you know, aim to be objective and and try to... They, they don't try and impose liberal viewpoints. Something along those lines. I mean, take take it for, for that what you will, but it, it doesn't matter. But um, there was a section where it actually said, like, professors to take classes with. Right. And they explicitly named a few professors that students had suggested... Or that students had, that the students surveyed had, you know, given as being good professors to take classes with. So, the prof- the linguistics professor John Costello came up there, and then because linguistics was one of the things that already at that time I was thinking I might be interested in, um, that name just stuck with me. So when I was you know looking at the list of classes that I could take, I was like, hey, John Costello. So that went mm-hmm. on my short list. That's literally, it's literally like, yeah, how that kind of, um, yeah, how that kind of ended up, right? Yeah, and um, I, I mean, you can you can kind of see why, why there are definitely students who have a lot of attachment to him because, um, that first day, after that that first class, he was like, okay, you know what. Meet me over in the in the linguistics building, and I will mm-hmm. just get you up to speed. And then I think for like two hours, right? We just sat on a, we just sat down like on a couch, and he yeah. was just like, "Okay, this is what you need to know. Um, this is how um, semantic drift, how words change mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, how meaning changes words. Right, actually is." <laughs> Oh no, he passed away in 2015. He did, yeah. Oh wow, okay. I mean, he was already very... He was nearing retirement by by that time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and even I think even while I was at NYU, there was a there was a period of time when he was in hospital. So okay, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't surprising. Um, yeah. yeah, so that was my introduction to linguistics, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like a intro to language and linguistics course compressed into two hours Oof. taught on the couch in the linguistics building. So, yeah. <laughs> which is a long way away from, you know, which is our, our long and meandering way of saying that, you know, how you find your academic interest is probably very idiosyncratic. Very much so. So, I mean, that was a time when it deflected away from computer science. Yeah. Right? And then... I mean, I was having this conversation with my course mates yesterday, right? And they're kind of like, so how do you kind of, you know, when you when you started the bootcamp, like, weren't you afraid that people would be like that? I'll be like, I, I said, no, because all of you have done something else. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> right? Like, yeah. especially the, the grad students in comm science, these are people, by and large, because um, NYU Courant, the comm science, yeah. where the comm science department is, um is in a sense it's very very good but it's also largely um people who have devoted their lives to comp science from the very beginning <laughs> right it's in hermit it's a hermitage in, in in a sense in a sense whereas <laughs> okay so the the program that i'm that i'm entering is the mcit program at penn masters yep. in computer and information technology and it's yep. explicitly for people with prior backgrounds in other things Right. Right. And I'm, I think it's the same kind of, you know, um, people who have landed on computer science after getting there from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I definitely, I mean, in the course, right, I definitely didn't think that there were people whose, <laughs> whose uh, social skills were anywhere as bad as Atrophied, um, yeah. Yeah. Which I so, guess is a good place for me to segue into my Richard Stallman anecdote. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, I mean, for those who don't know, Richard Stallman is considered one of the gurus of open source software, which is another thing I'm going to get into at, at some point, right? Mm-hmm. You know, he's, uh, pretty, I think he was one of the people who developed GNU, GNU, right? Yes, uh, yeah. Which is the basis on which, you know, a lot of uh, open source software is, is yeah. written. He's, I think, one of the architects of the open source kind of... Um, philosophy movement, as well yeah. yeah the movement correct so you know he's a very aggressive believer in in the, in the idea that software should be free he doesn't use microsoft products you mm-hmm. know i think all his machines run linux you know uh and 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 and, and so on and so forth mm-hmm. um but he's also a very aggressively anti-social figure mm-hmm. um yes he, he so he did once come to singapore to give a talk uh and i had the misfortune of being nominated as the person who would uh, introduce him <laughs> and host him as well. For some odd reason, I was, you know, I was not a computer scientist. You know, I, <laughs> I, I don't consider myself a programmer, at least not back then. Now, increasingly, maybe I, I do. Um, but yeah, so so the first thing that you know in, in email correspondence is that okay, I have a, a, a you know a fairly long list of peculiarities that I would like to see attended to. And it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a, basically a rider. And he, it's pub, it, yeah. that's public information. Yeah. That's, I think, on his website. And he goes, you know, I don't do this. I don't do that. You know, do not ask me about, you know, about Microsoft. And so on and so forth. Um, okay. 
And so, okay, you know, first red flag, right? Wow, you know, that's that's yeah. a really detailed list of, of things that he will, will and will not do. Um, and then, you know, he comes in, he's this big guy, you know, mostly unkempt, long beard, which seems to be sort of the, the at least the old school image of a tech guru, right? Yeah. Not the Mark Zuckerberg slash Jack Dorsey kind of uh, yeah. uh, image now, you know, that's the sort of the old school kind of, kind of view. Um, and... And I think the thing that struck me the most was that he sat down right in front of a bunch of students, you know, to give a talk. And the first thing he did upon sitting down was taking off his shoes and socks, <laughs> just airing his feet in front of a bunch of students, which was like, I mean, okay, sure, but <clears throat> yeah. So, so I mean, you know, and and of course he he's known to be very cantankerous, so we didn't want to piss him mm-hmm. off. Yeah. It was just trying to accommodate him. And, you know, I mean, I think sort of more modern, uh, you know, I have obviously not met him in, in recent years and, you know, it's been years since, since the incident happened. But I think increasingly people are starting to turn away from Richard Stallman as being the prophet of open source software because of just how deeply unpleasant he is or he can be. Yeah, I mean, it's not a good PR look. And Pretty as easy. much as, the thing is, as much as... Um, okay, so as much as computer science nerds really want to get away from the PR side of it, because I think computer science, probably more than most disciplines, are very intent on, you know, show me the evidence, right? Can you do this? Can right. you do that? Like, Process does it work? Process rather it not? than form. Um, Function rather than form. Yeah, I think I think that would be, be accurate, right? And so... Yeah. Um, with, you know, with a guy like Richard Stallman, I think computer science is much more likely to look at his achievements yeah. and um, ignore his idiosyncrasies because <laughs> it's just, well, you know, look at the result. Yeah. Um, but I think the the reality is that a lot of, you know, if you want to be, um, if you want to leave the bubble, right, of what you are doing, um, if you want to, because I mean, I, I'm assuming that Richard Stallman is, he would like free software to take over the world, right? Yes. Um, that's more or less he, his goal. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, um, you need an evangelist who is acceptable to the large majority of people and not dismissive of them. Yes. Correct. And Whereas I think, I think Richard Stallman has evolved towards being actively dismissive of anyone who doesn't see the world the way he does. Yeah. So I think that's really why, you know, because he, he really is on the extreme end of um, dogma. And, an ideological <laughs> spectrum, and, yeah. Yeah, correct. And I think, you know, most of the people who agree with him about the goals definitely don't agree with him about the way to get there. Yeah, and uh, I think that's also why, like in 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 recent years, you see more people who um, more figureheads, I guess, for you know, um, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, like Lawrence Lessig, um, yes. Aaron Swartz, lawyer. Which again is significant. He is a lawyer, because yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. somebody who's comfortable speaking and talking to people and sussing out yep. their motivations, um, that's right. and yeah, just. He's just kind of like 
Stallman has just, I, I won't say that he's become less of this towering figure, but more, he's become more of this reclusive figure. He's just faded. <laughs> yes. Right? From, from, yes. from view. Um, anyway, where, okay, so I'm kind of like looping way back around to kind of like educational experience um, because this is something else that we were talking about yesterday and I thought it would be interesting to kind of um, bring it up or discuss it with you because for me, my um, university, my tertiary level experience, right, has been entirely in one institution. Um, in, in two countries, for sure, but one institution. So um, when I was talking to some of my course mates and with my instructor and they had very negative experiences in university because... Right. <laughs> yeah, because for them, university was you sit in a lecture hall, a professor reads you his PowerPoint. Yeah. <laughs> and uh yeah. And um, Well it depends but, on which universities you go to, I guess, and which programs right. you are part of. You know, there's this fair amount of variance. I mean, we talked about how liberal arts colleges are yeah. culturally a very different and you know, you do see a difference in terms of educational uh, approaches there as well. So I'm I was I was thinking about um, I mean, it would be cheap to say why the difference, right? Or where does this yeah. difference come from? Um, because obviously, it's not one factor. It's many different factors. And sure. um, I don't necessarily want to say that cultural factors play a part in, in it because I actually think a lot of... Uh, for sure, the, the university culture will play a part in it. I don't know the extent to which a national culture plays a part in it because we're right. talking about universities from... From Singapore, from Spain, um, and then from from the US, and even in the case of the US, right, we've had a relatively restricted view of you yep. know large research universities. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's it's large research universities that are relatively well funded, which is an important, which is a, an important factor as well. Um, yep. So I can't say okay, it's. I've definitely had cases of the professor who prepared his lecture and then read from his notes. Oh, God. But it's significant for how uncommon it was. I can only think of one professor who was like that. Okay, yeah, yeah. In lecture. In tutorial, he was fine. So, um... Yeah, yeah, so I'm not sure whether that's just like his preference for preparing lectures or like what the heck was going on. I have no idea. Um, of course, this is also a function of me being a film student mm -hmm. and then being a linguistics minor and a Spanish major. And those departments um, are not small. Uh, I mean, I, I can say for sure, like film in NYU was about 200 to 250 a year. Yeah. But because of the nature of what film is, after the first year when you are doing like, you know, like language or film, like film studies kind of classes or like screenwriting, intro to, um, what was it? Storytelling strategies was the, was the screenwriting class. And then of course those have big lectures with, you know, where you're watching films and then you discuss them and so on. 
But of course, you are in a lecture and you're watching films. You're not looking at a professor's PowerPoint. Right? Yes, correct. So it's yeah, and it's not in a sense it's not that approach. Is, yeah, and I mean in a sense it's not that different from going to the cinema and then after the yeah. after you after the show you just sit there and you continue talking about it. So um, yeah, it's not a fair comparison. No. for the most part, the Spanish department was was um, smaller, right? Still a relatively big department. It was about fifty a year. 50 majors a year. Majors and minors, I'm not sure. Yeah, so about 200 majors and minors at any given time. Linguistics was about 15 majors a year. Okay, okay, right. So, uh, and because I didn't take, I actually didn't take any of the, I took one class that is part of the major requirements, one. (laughs) The rest that I took would have been electives. Um, yes, okay. If okay. I had been a major. So, uh, of course, the requirements for minors are much less are much less um, strict. So, yeah. the class that was required of all majors, that was about 50. And still enough that you can have effectively a seminar-style discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Um, linguistics has the added... I don't want to say advantage, but the 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 oddity that it's specialized enough, you can't just Google the answers. I found this out. <laughs> I found this yeah. out the hard way. <laughs> like enough. you can't, yeah, you can't just tune out, right? Yeah. Uh, but I never had that experience. I never had that sense that the the professor was not actually interested in teaching. Is is the point okay, that I'm okay. getting at? Um, there there was very much a. a commitment to you know even if I, I prepare my material very well right and when I talk about it I'm not just a robot I'm actually yeah. telling you the cool stuff right yeah 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 there is that um, sort of like, you know intellectual engagement with the material rather than just recit- recitation yeah yeah and so when I was listening to you know these graduates from these very eminent universities and both in the case of Singapore and Spain these are these are universities that regularly appear in your you know top lists ARWU all that stuff right yeah um yeah and they just described it as professors reading off the powerpoint and <laughs> students just not being disengaged because the professor is disengaged from teaching and i Cannot relate I mean, to that experience. Well, personally. okay. I mean, there are. I think. I think what they're, what they're describing is sort of a, 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 a what I would call epiphenomenon, right? As, uh, mm-hmm. You know, something that appears to be the case, but there are multiple drivers, and you know, mm-hmm. it's it's not a single factor that, that leads up to this, epiphenomenon. which allows me to segue epiphenomenon, right? Which allows <laughs> yeah. me to segue into what I've been trying to, what I've been itching to discuss for the last two months, I would say, since okay, the semester great. began. Right. Um, I mean, as someone who's now on the the teaching end of 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 this of of you know the equation, right? As a graduate student, um, and you know who has to teach for a living, no less. Um, and you know the and and, you know given this whole transition to online learning as well, it really does Mm -hmm. expose, um, sort of uh, you know the the more the limitations of the traditional lecture system. That's number one, and we've discussed the, the limitations of the traditional exam-based assessment system oh as well. God, yes. Right? 
And yeah. but it also does, you know, uh, really put a spotlight on how you're teaching, and making your teaching as accessible as possible to your students. Yeah. Right. In the past, you know, you could cram students into a lecture theater, into a computer lab, and say, "Okay, click on this, read this," you know, and 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 it's fairly sort of standardized. It's almost monastic, of yeah. sorts. Yeah. Right. Um, and and now with online learning. You know, we're starting to realize that all those old paradigms that we've, you know, that people have in the past talked about as being outdated and, you know, not really being very effective as learning, learning, you know, not accommodating of varying learning strategies or learning styles should be phased out. And now we're really being yeah. forced to, 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 to think about these things. So, you know, the, how much, I mean, to begin with, the, the idea of the recorded lecture has been resisted by so many academics for such a long time. Right, uh, NUS did allow you know their their faculty in the past to have what we call webcast lectures, but right. that was an option that you had to opt into. Right, and I think it might cost extra money as well because I of the manpower to yeah. Remember this particular um, this particular opposition was something along the lines of if we record the lecture, nobody will come to lecture. Okay, I mean, and, and now, the, you know, right. And, and at the time, it was viewed as such a big thing to think about. And today, it's like, yeah. so? <laughs> you don't have a choice. Nobody can come to lecture. Right. But even then, you know, it, that, that was such a bizarre hang-up at right, the time. Yeah. You know, if people want to come to lecture, let them come to lecture. If they don't want to come to lecture for whatever reason, you know, they're not feeling well, you know, they have parents to deal with for example in a different state especially this is the case in the u.s you yeah. know or they have some other problems let them opt to not come I right and the webcast lecture is, uh, obviously sorry yeah i was gonna i mean i think this speaks to kind of insecurity right which is if professors were were sure that coming to class provided additional value then there would be so much less of a hang-up because you know, if students don't want to come to class, well, they are losing out. Not me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think <laughs> it, it kind of speaks to that, you know, even back then, professors knew that they weren't teaching as effectively as they should be. Yes. Um, because it's to view attendance, uh, mandatory attendance, funnily enough, as like a sign of whether you are doing well as a teacher is it's a sad metric yeah it's it's not a great <laughs> way to to measure like your effectiveness as a teacher it really isn't right yeah. so that's that's part one and the part i i that, i mean has i wouldn't say pissed me off but it has been a major source of frustration yeah. for the last uh you know few few months it's you know, and I talked about how in the past it would have been just okay to cram students, graduate students or otherwise, into a into a computer lab, and say, okay, here's the software that the school has provided, use mm -hmm. it. Right? Yeah. So I'm now doing a course in geographical, two courses actually, in geographical information systems. For the layperson, it's map making. Yeah. Which is a, a surprisingly complex field. Yes. Right? <laughs> uh, Another one of those things that isn't complex until you think about how to do it from from yeah. um, first principles yeah when you have started to realize that huh projections matter and you know projections are how you you know you project a coordinate system onto onto a oblate spheroid that the earth is right which is <laughs> yeah. not as easy as you think right yep. you know how do we just because to to turn a three-dimensional oblate spheroid into a two-dimensional 
flat surface, you're going to have to distort something at some point, right? So, you know, what distortions work, what distortions don't, uh, and, you know, really depend on your use case as well uh, for, 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 for the map, right? And how, you know, how your coordinate system can vary from global coordinate systems, which will introduce a fair amount of distortion in certain regions to mm-hmm. very local coordinates, uh, very local projections that just project for the particular sort of landmass that you're looking at. Right. Right. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm doing a course in GIS, two courses in GIS. Um, and GIS is a field that, you know, it's a, it's a fairly professional field. You know, not, not everyone, you know, I mean, okay, to be fair, these days, anyone with Google Maps thinks they're a cartographer. <laughs> um, Google yeah. Earth, Google Maps, right? But, you know, the, the field itself is a very, fairly technical one. And there's several sort of specialized software suites that um, yeah. are designed to facilitate the creation and analysis of map spatial data. Right, right. Uh, and of course, the most famous of this is ArcGIS, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, per, which is designed and you know sold by the ESRI, ESRI company. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the problem with this software, right, and it, it is a widely used software for, I would say, historical reasons, right? And you know, it used to be sort of the leading software in the past for making maps. Lots of companies, government agencies use this software package, but here are mm-hmm. the problems. Number okay. one, it only runs on Windows. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? Actually, that, that, that is probably the biggest problem. Number two, it is very expensive. Okay. It, it's, it's enterprise software, right? So it's okay. designed to be sold to companies, you know, to, to, to government agencies, you know, volume licensing, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? And number three, and this is uh, slightly more arcane, but no less annoying it only runs python 2.7 okay yes <laughs> which is, you yep. know so i'm doing a course right now on programming for gis which you know right. i felt would be a great way for me to get into python uh and it and in in fairness it has been right i i you know i now know an infinitely more uh, i have a much more i have a much you know, an infinitely more detailed understanding of python than i did you know uh say two months ago yeah, I can actually read by Python zero. syntax. Yeah, well, division fair by zero is infinity. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yes, so you know, um, I, I, yeah, and and I now at least can understand some aspects of Python syntax. You know, it's coming. And to be fair, it's not been as difficult a learning curve because I already know some other programming languages as well to some extent. Yeah, um, but. Because ArcGIS runs only on Windows, the first thing is that I run on I run a Mac. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I th- don't think it's it's fair to assume that everyone has a Windows machine these days. No. Yeah. Right. Definitely. Know, the, yeah. I, I do bioinformatics, and ideally, I should be running a Linux machine because yep. a lot of these analysis pipelines run on you know prefer a Unix base. Yes. To run. Um, and I feel that a Mac is sort of the happy medium in between. Something that's yep. a bit user-friendly with, you know, sort of broad support from, from, from the developers, but also running on the core Unix base. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, you know, so because ArcGIS does not run on the Mac, does not run on the Unix shell, mm-hmm. you, to, I mean, to, to, to run the software, you either have to boot camp which requires yep. a lot of memory space, which I don't have on this tiny yep. ass solid state hard drive, or you have to make a virtual desktop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, you know, for those who have used virtual desktops is a clever concept in principle, but in, in, in practice, it's, it's slow. It's clunky. 
Right, it's like it's, using a Windows machine fun. but slower. Yeah, it's really which is saying fun. a lot. Yeah. Yes. Right. <laughs> um, so the the you know so so yeah and and you know at the start of this course the the, the lecturer said okay if you don't have a Windows machine we'll pre- prepare a virtual desktop for you, uh, you know and the problem is the sort of the the IT department uh, forgot to install the correct license for RGS. So for the first two weeks of this 13-week course, we were unable to access the virtual desktop because there was no license Great. <laughs> to run the software on. So already that's the beginning of our problems, right? Yeah. Um, and then of course they said, oh, then you you know you can, you can just register for a student license and install it on the bootcamp instance. Well, I, I cannot do that because I have 20 gigs of memory left on my hard disk. Mm. How I'm not going to be able to install bootcamp. Yeah, no. Right, and yeah. the other thing is, I don't have a spare copy of Windows just lying around. Yes, which is often underappreciated by people who say you can just run bootcamp. Like, no, I can't. Yeah, my, you know, Windows doesn't come with my machine. Right, you know, and Windows is not cheap. You no, know, you know, are you expecting me? Are you telling me that I should pirate something? You know, Christ's sakes, you know. I mean, so so as a, as a student, I once paid. I, I bought um, Windows to play games on my Mac. Uh, that was painful. Right. I mean, yeah. sure. I know, you know, bootcamp works perfectly fine on most Mac machines these days. You know, there, there are very few hiccups. But, you know, just the, the process of having to install the Windows, having to create a, a disk partition as well, it's a lot of work. It's not a good user experience. It, it's also not, not a good use of a computer. No, really, is not <laughs> for, for 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 you know. If um, you if you need a Windows platform, get a dedicated Windows machine. I, okay, unless this is an, a very very massive aside, which is uh, one of my favorite podcasts is ATP Accidental Tech right. Podcast. Yeah, and one of the you know for any podcast they they just celebrated their four hundredth episode, so Bloody it's hell. been running for seven years, and for any podcast that runs that long, you there are like inside jokes that develop and so on and so forth. Sure, and so. One of the longest running inside jokes or threads or sagas, right, from ATP is um, John Syracuse's Mac Pro. <laughs> so, John Syracuse, if you, if you don't know who he is, now he's probably most famous for ATP. Yes. But before that, um, before ATP, he was, um, he wrote for Ars Technica and mm-hmm. he was the guy who wrote the OS X reviews. When it was still yes. OS X and not Mac OS. So yes. every time there was a new um, OS X, um, he would write like this epic, like 10 page review. I of remember every those. Single thing in, in minute the, detail. Yeah, he was like, was, you know. <laughs> yes. So it's like, it comes, it's, you know, something new appears in like, you know, about your Mac, he will notice it. Right, yeah. um, every, things every that you never... with spotlight. He will talk about it. Yes, correct. For example, so uh, <laughs> if, I mean, his website is hypercritical.co. Yes, um, he used to have a podcast by that name with uh, with Dan Benjamin. So, so in on ATP, right? Um, let's say at the start of ATP, John Syracuse had a 2008 Mac Pro. The cheese right. grater, the original cheese yes, grater. Yes, that's right. The, the yeah. first cheese grater. Correct. Right. And of course, 2013 was when the the trash can Mac Pro came out. Yes. Right. Yes. And he didn't 
want that one because you, if you know John Syracuse, you know he does not like this kind of... He wants his computer to be upgradable. You can put stuff in it. Yep. You know, you can play around. He, he wants it exactly the way he wants it. So he did yes. not get the trash can Pro Mac Pro. And he <laughs> held on to his... He held on to his cheese grater Mac Pro for 10 years. Oh, God. Until the new Mac Pro came out. The, 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 the new and better cheese grater. Yes, correct. Correct. <laughs> the, the 3D cheese grater. Yeah. So there is an epic episode. I don't remember the episode number, but the title of it is With a Heavy Heart. <laughs> and that entire episode, okay, is John Syracuse talking about how he's configuring his new Mac Pro. Like, literally, they just open up the Mac Pro configurator and he goes step by step down the configurator <laughs> explaining why he chose this amount of RAM, why he chose this this particular processor, and just all the way down. And uh, if you are wondering what the heavy heart is referring to, okay, this is a... Uh, it's going to be... A, it's a spoiler, but I don't care. You've... You know, if you... If you if you know the saga, you've already heard it. If you don't know the saga, you don't care enough to well, yeah, care about spoilers. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, when the Mac Pro first was announced, they also announced the Pro XDR display. Yes. Right. And we have talked they, about this before. Uh, on on the podcast, I, think I can't so. remember. Have we? Yeah. Okay. Whatever, whatever it is. So yeah, we we can just finish the story. So they announced the price. Which I think is yep. five thousand, yeah, like four nine four nine nine nine. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. And at this point, John Syracuse is like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> and then they say, "And then one thousand dollars for the stand." Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> so the with a heavy heart is the part where he says, "With a heavy heart, I am going to buy the one thousand dollars stand." Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, he, having bought his five-figure Mac Pro, oh. I, I don't think he actually paid five figures. He he did My manage heart. to like, yeah, he did manage to get like discounts here and there from like, sure. he got like a friends and family discount and things like that. Um, and like <laughs> he had an Apple card, so he got like a 3% discount, which on wow. a Mac Pro is a massive discount. <laughs> I mean, it's like a few hundred on a Mac Pro. Yeah. Um, yeah. A Mac Pro and the Pro Display XDR with a $1,000 stand. So, yeah. um, he runs boot camp on that Mac Pro to play <laughs> Destiny. Seriously? Yes. Oh, for crying out loud. Yes. I just have to I just have to, had to have that long winding story just to oh, get to no, this point right where where like and and then the funny thing is there are episodes where he talks about why it why it's a pain to play Destiny on bootcamp on his Mac Pro and the other two guys um, Marco Armin and Casey List they're just like dude yes. this is <laughs> an ad for gaming PCs yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's like no no I have this Mac Pro I'm going to use it <laughs> I mean if you've yeah. blown five figures out on the Mac Pro I guess it yeah. kind of does make sense but good 
God. Okay. So, and he so, has a PlayStation so, with Destiny, oh, but geez. go on. Yeah. So back to this broader issue, right? So, you know, okay, number one runs on your Windows, needs a virtual desktop, yada, yada, yada. And this is the annoying thing. I'm learning how to, you know, to I'm learning Python for the first time, formally at least, you know. Yeah. Past exposure notwithstanding. And I was expecting, you know, coming in and bearing in mind that Python 2.7 or Python 2.x has been deprecated already. It's no longer yes. being supported or developed anymore. Right? Yep. And now Python 3, 3.x is the go-to standard, right? Yeah. I learned to my horror, and this was, you know, two, three weeks into the class. The, 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 the instruction never actually bothered to mention this to anyone until we were two to three weeks in. And when someone okay. asked the question that... Arc, you know, ArcMap 10 or Arc, you know, ArcGIS 10.6, which is the version we were using, um, only runs on Python 2.7. So we would only be learning Python 2.7 syntax. Yay. Which annoys me because it's 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Surely you should be keeping up with, you know, latest developments. And it's the, what's the whole point of going to university if we're not going to be taught? sort of the most up-to-date methodologies and the most up-to-date, you know, techniques. Yeah. Right, you know, yes. for, for doing data analysis. And, 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 you know, so this is what really pissed me off about the whole thing. And this is, and, and, the, and okay, if ArcMap and ArcGIS were the only software on earth that could do this, fair enough, right? Yeah. But, and this is, this is, you know, this, this is, this is the kicker, right? There are plenty of software suites out there that are, number one, open source, Yes. Richard Stallman, right? Yes. Number two, free. Uh-huh. Number three, cross-platform. Number uh-huh. four, using a much more modern programming language version yeah. that exists out there. And number five, are equally user-friendly. So I have a question about this, which is, um, I feel like I've asked you this offline before, but I don't remember if we discussed this at length. Um is ArcGIS like absolutely dominant in this in, in this in, space? In the nineties, it used to be. So I think in right. the nineties to the early two thousands, it was you know the main player. I mean, there are a bunch right. of other smaller software suites out there that have very specific uses, like ENVI, uh, which I think is much more specifically just for processing remote sensing data. So raw data from satellites come in, and NV is used to just you know deal with these things. Um, so ArcGIS was sort of, you know, the complete package. Right. You could do everything in ArcGIS. And it's notoriously unstable as hell as well. <laughs> um, Great. It, 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 you know, it dies very often. And one of the big gripes you, you hear about on Twitter is, you know, oh, I was in the middle of doing this and ArcGIS died and I didn't save my data. <laughs> Yay, okay. Which is typical, right? Uh, but, you know, in, in you know, sometime around, I think, the 2000s, people started realizing, you know, we shouldn't be paying this exorbitant fee for software that could easily be done outside for less. Right. Right. And, you know, at, at, the, at the very core, all these ArcGIS functions are written in Python anyway, which is why we're learning Python 2.7. Yes. Can't we do it on our own? Right. You know, for for as an open source software. And so a community, you know, formed and they developed this thing called Quantum GIS or QGIS as now it's okay. called. Or QGIS. Um, and it's, you know, it's open source. It's free. It runs on any platform. Right. And as of, you know, about uh, 10 updates ago, it runs Python 3. Right. <laughs> 
right. you know, and, and, and the thing is this, you know, so, 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 you know, okay, this is the first semester where everyone is going completely online, right? So, yes. and it's really exposed this idea that, hey, I can't just cram everyone into a, into a computer lab that's all running Windows, whatever, that has the, li- the volume license installed, right? Right. Perhaps we should be looking at reforming the course. Now, I mean, if I put myself in the shoes of the instructor, I can see how, you know, given the extremely short notice, mm-hmm. having to rewrite everything, you know, the assignments and everything from scratch to accommodate a completely different software package is a huge task. Yes. But, you know, this is something that they really should have been thinking about at least two, two, two academic years ago, right? We, we first heard that Python 2.x was going to be deprecated <laughs> a fair amount of I time ago. It was, a while, yeah, it was a while ago, yeah. Right. It, it's not as if, you know, this is something that's just sprung on us out of the blue. You know, I, I've heard about this, this, this thing for, for at least a year yeah. now. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's not something that we haven't had time to technically prepare for. But the other thing as well is this, you know, as, a, as an educational philosophy, you should not be asking students to learn how to do things you know, that are, I, I guess, with extremely sort of constraint, they only apply in very constrained circumstances. You should try to at yes. least impart skills that are, you know, as broadly applicable as possible to, you know, even within a specialist course. I, I, I think, so this is, this kind of speaks to something that, um, okay, so stuff that is often used at the enterprise level, right, is often not suitable for teaching, Unless the course obviously is um, explicitly about how to use this particular piece of enterprise software. So, for example, yes. um, <clears throat> for example, if you are, if the course is like how to use Avid Media Composer, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, right. But does not then follow, and and you can then say that okay, ninety percent of the film industry uses Avid Media Composer, right? Does not then follow that every that you should be taught on Avid Media Composer as a matter of course. Because yes. um, if, if, you're, if you're thinking about teaching objectives, which is about how to produce, uh, you know, where to make a cut, how to, you know, do an... Well, not like physically how to click the buttons to make an L cut, but the principle of it, right? It's like, when yes. is this appropriate? When is that appropriate? When do you want to do this? When do you want to do that? You can do it on... You can do it in, well, you can do it in iMovie, right? No uh, yeah. film school teaches in iMovie, um, but that's because iMovie has limitations mm-hmm. that prevent you from... It's, it's one of those cases where you, it doesn't offer enough control. Yes. Right? You, you want to teach on something that is still professional, but has the capacity for... Um, it abstracts away what it needs to abstract away. It leaves what you want to teach behind. Correct. Right? Correct. And um, I think that's why Final Cut Adobe are commonly used in teaching. And then very often, like, Avid is like a third or fourth year, is an elective. Like, mm. if you want to be yeah. an editor, yeah. we'll teach you Avid. But if you want to work in film and you want to understand film as a discipline, you don't have to learn Avid unless it's specifically the thing that you want to do. Yeah. And yeah. I've, of but course, I mean, when it comes to when it sorry. comes to like computer science, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as a discipline, you often see this as well, like a teaching language versus a production language. Yes. The 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 languages that are most commonly used 
in large production applications. If you go and look at like, um, there's a list on Wikipedia, we'll find it about, you know, what the largest companies use in production. And mm-hmm. you see a lot of Scala. You see okay. a bit of yep. Go. Um, okay. And Scala is Java-based. Go is C-based. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. But you're not really going to find this taught in most universities. No. Because they are specialized. It's a, it's, they have specialized users. If you want yes. a teaching language, you are going to see C. You are, you are going to see Java mm-hmm. for better or for worse. You see Python a lot. Uh, Scheme or Lisp used to be quite common. N- less so yeah. now because Lisp-based languages have kind of become less of a thing in general. And I think the idea is from C, you can go anywhere. From Python, um, Python is obviously used a lot in universities, in, in academia. Yes. But also Python is, uh, once you've understood the basic principles of computer science, Python is very lightweight, very extensible. It doesn't yeah. impose a lot of, it doesn't impose a lot of kind of overhead on the student. And there are good libraries out there that have already you know, yeah. done a lot of the heavy lifting for for you. Yeah. And I mean, there's probably a lot that we could talk about here. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. to be fair, ArcGIS is an excellent teaching software. Right. right. But I think, you know, my main gripe is that second level above that, which is the accessibility problem, right? Yep. Which I think increasingly we need to think about, you know, at least as educators, you know, I, if, if you're going to be teaching something to students, you shouldn't be expecting them to fork out, say, you know, a ton of cash for software, which in this case we didn't have to because the, you can get the student trial license for 30 days or something like that or whatever. Right. Uh, you know, for, for ArcGIS. But but regardless, right, you know, there, there, there should be considerations about software accessibility, uh, you know, when you're designing a course. And, you know, I think it's, you know, yeah, this course has been designed for ArcMap. It's probably been taught for at least seven, eight years now, you know, mm-hmm. probably more than that. And so a lot of the, you know, the things that they've come up with originally have been baked in for a long time. And it right. does speak to the need to, at, at some point, you know, regularly to revise your course material, right? Not just the course by, you know, something that some other professor prepared and you're just relying on and going, yeah, okay, you know what, I'll just teach this, you know? Yep. You know these days, at least in, in, in academic cartography, we, you know, sure, ArcGIS is still widely used to make maps, but mm-hmm. for analyzing spatial data it's not so useful anymore for one main reason is that it's not very reproducible. Right. Right. Which is, a, all these, which is not acceptable in science. In academia. Exactly. Yeah. In science. So, so, you know, QGIS is, is a much more sort of available platform. I think a lot of people were hesitant about it because, you know, and, and we are still coming out of that phase, right? A lot of the hesitancy over open source software. Whether it would break, you know, because it is written by effectively volunteers, right? Yes. Whether or not it it, it, it would you know, give spurious results, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But QGIS has, you know, gradually become a. I, I'm using it right now on my Mac, right? And it's a really, yeah. really good software suite. But the other thing is that you can now even do spatial analysis in R. Right. So why are we sticking to the old ossified ArcGIS, old ossified expensive platform restricted, clunky, always breaking ArcGIS? 
you know, and even for, and, and you know, the two courses I'm doing are both, you know, sort of analytical courses. One is introductory, and, and this is the title, Introductory Programming for GIS, <laughs> right? And Spatial Modeling. That, yeah, that's a bit too general. Like, I would accept it if it specifically was, if it specifically specified ArcGIS, right? Like, yes, exactly. Learn and this it's nowhere be- indicated yeah. on the syllabus that they would be relying only on ArcGIS. Right. Yeah, that So that, that would, really pisses me off. That would piss me off, yeah. I'm surprised to hear that in the academic com- community, there's still resistance to open source software for the reasons that you stated, because I think academia is relatively well-placed to address those issues compared to, say... I think it depends on which pockets you are. So, for example, right. you know, in some of the social sciences, there is still this slavish devotion to SPSS or Stata. <sighs> okay. Right, despite the fact that you know SPSS is again is an IBM software, it's proprietary, it's licensed, but it's you know it's nice and point and clicky. Oh, <laughs> so right. you know, for for a humanities student or social science student who's not versed in programming, ah ha ha ha, click click click, I get my results. Right, I mean, that's I I think that's unfortunate because I think like a facility with. I mean, if you're an academic, like you should not be constrained in your methodology by companies by companies yeah um i don't want to say by software i mean you are always constrained by software but you are it, it perpetually like, constrained by software yeah but it it feels like it feels like this is a thing that you know if you need to you should be at a point where okay i i, I may not okay i i don't think that it's fair to say you should be able to write the software that you need, but you should be able to find a way to get the software that you need without being... Um, I mean, it's easier said than done if you're on the cutting edge. Yes, um, you know, that is Developing true. new techniques. So, but, you know, I think it is something that we will eventually move away from, hopefully, at least for, for, for some, some portions of the field. So GIS is one of those fields where, you know, a lot of it has ossified because of industry dominance by one software package, by one company for such a long time. Right. right. Uh, you know, social science statistics as well, similar problem. But this, this, this ideological capture by SPSS or by Starter has, you know, happened since the 80s and the 90s. And... Increasingly, you're seeing people move out of it into R, which I think is only a good thing. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm thinking about the open source part of it because um, when when I was doing my Levagon boot camp, um, there was a question yeah. that was asked, which is for open source libraries, right, and open source software in general, um, how do they fund their development? Because yes, it can be maintained by volunteers, right? But yep. once it gets to a scale where you have the organizational complexity of a company, right, where, you know, you have a project manager, you have people delegating work and things like that, uh, maintaining dependencies and all that, all that stuff, mm-hmm. writing documentation, right? Uh, how do you actually, how do you actually maintain it? Now, obviously, some open source software is backed by companies, right? So yes. you have, I mean, WordPress is an obvious case, but... That's a company that sprang out of an open source software, but you have Basecamp, which um, they write their own frameworks, and then the frameworks mm-hmm. are open source, but obviously they're sponsored by Basecamp. Um, and um, the answer that comes, so I I haven't been keeping up with developments in open source, um, mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's just one of those things that I don't really keep my eye on. But the answer kind of surprised me, which was that um, for what happens is that companies who come to depend on a library will will pay for its development. So it's open source. The library is still open source, right? Mm-hmm. But if a company comes to be very dependent on it for their business logic, or, f- or it doesn't have to be for business logic, which really should be owned by the company. But if a company own, um, becomes dependent on, on a library for some key part of their website or their software or whatever, then often they will they will either assign their developers to it or they will yep. pay for its development um, by saying like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll pay you to work on this open source software. You sure, but you know, this um, applies mostly to companies with substantial companies. amounts of capital. Yeah, Correct. not SMEs or, you know, yeah. Correct. Well, I mean, arguably, Basecamp is an SME, but again, they sure. are, they're an exception in a lot of ways. Um, right. So I'm, I'm thinking about in, in academia, I mean, I understand that, again, for, for, for disciplines for which, right, the software is essential to the functioning of the discipline, but the creation of the software is not part of the discipline itself. Yeah. I can kind of understand why there's this kind of inertia and, you know, I, I don't want to say like resistance per se, but just like not seeing that this is a potential problem. Yeah. Um, but I am surprised that, because like I said, academia seems relatively well-placed to address this problem collectively. I mean, I, 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 you know, we're running a bit long on time, but I don't think That's this fine. is something yeah. that infects the geography department at the, what I would say, production level, so at the academic level. Right. Where, you know, they're doing research, but at the pedagogical level, I think this is where it infects right. a lot. Because, you know, it takes, I mean, right. to be fair, it takes a lot of time to prepare a course. Yes. You know, I had my first taste of this a couple of years ago where I had to design three out of 13 weeks worth of material. And mm-hmm. holy shit, it was a lot of work. It <laughs> is know, a lot of work. Having yeah. to write the assignments, having to think of a grading scheme for the assignments, yada, 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 yada. You know, yeah. having to figure out where students might potentially get confused and writing additional resources for the students, you know, to cover those bases. Um, it's it's a lot of work. and And, you know, yeah, it takes a long time and it's a lot of investment as well that you not, may not even necessarily get paid for. A lot of people are doing this during mm. the summer months and summer yeah. salary isn't always forthcoming. Yeah, I think it's... Which then goes back to why... Um, it's that thing about distance learning and or remote learning, right? And why it's often not effective, which is then goes back to the original question of, you know, is in-person learning effective in many institutions? Right. Even? Yeah. Because it, it comes down to, you know, if the student can just read it, why don't they just read it? Yeah. Right? Um, if a student can just read the paper, why don't they just read the paper? I mean, there there is a reason why you kind of why academia is a is a, is a is a socialization in itself right because you mm-hmm. have to learn how to read an academic paper um mm-hmm. and how to assess you know the the quality of a paper it, it's it's because this is um it's a skill set that the professor has learned and takes yes. for granted among his own his own colleagues but when you're talking to undergrads especially, right, they have yeah. no idea. And that gap 
is not effectively bridged. And that's on the professor because the undergrad doesn't know they're there to learn how to yes. do that thing that you are doing right now, but you're not coming down to that level. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think the thing is that reading off PowerPoints thing, right? If the student is perfectly capable of understanding what you mean by reading your PowerPoints, then maybe they should just do that and not come to lecture. Because yeah. it would be a more efficient use of time for everybody. Yeah. And if they are not capable, well, that should that's what you're teaching. That's what teaching is for, right? Like if they are not capable of grasping the material without support, yep. Then you have to teach. Yes. So I mean that 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 brings my gripe about this course. I think to a nice graceful end. You know, it's it's. This is all obviously going to go into my teaching feedback yeah. <laughs> for this course. Um, but it, it, you know, I I do wonder how many institutions around the world continue to 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 cling onto this sort of old paradigm of you know enterprise software is 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 better than than open source software, or you know at least you know this this inertia of having to update the syllabus uh, to keep abreast of you know just changes in in you know software trends, oh but God. also you know usability for thinking about well at least and this is something that I think you know and and. To, this is something I'm thinking about a lot of, you know, especially since, you know, as someone who intends to go into academia, one of the things I have to produce is a teaching statement. Right. If yes. I apply for a job. Right. And this yeah. is something that I think is very important. When you teach, you know, the 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 resources you rely on should be as much as possible, as accessible as possible for students. There's there's no point to locking everything behind paywalls, enterprise, uh, you know, e enterprise uh, licensing fees, etc., etc. I mean, the way I think about it, as someone who comes from film school, right, is mm. um, that in the tools that you're providing to students, that should be yeah. part of the tuition cost. That's true. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or at so, most I mean, like the a lab pays for an, Yeah, if the school pays for an Adobe yeah. license, don't be telling the students, you know, you should be using Final Cut instead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. If the student wants to pay for it on their own machine, which a lot of us did, then that's fine because then you you have that thing when you leave school. But if yeah. you're in school for the purposes of teaching and learning, like that yeah. should be part of the fees that you pay at the start of the semester and then that's it. Mm -hmm. And it's not a big problem for me in this case. I think the, really the big problem is don't, you know, we should no longer be asking people to use Microsoft-only software for for academic purposes. Oh for God, crying yes. out loud, you know, there's so there are so many alternatives that are cross-platform these days that are free as well. I mean, R is such yeah. a versatile language. You know, I, I think I was showing you this 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 thing from a few few uh, weeks, a few months ago, right? R is now Possibly. able to do 3D rendering. Oh yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> 3D video rendering in R, which I expect is probably not easy. You know, it's probably going to be clunky mm -hmm. as hell, but it can be done. You know, and and at, at the end of the day, right? A map is just a two dimensional plot. It's a graph. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, you know, R handles graphs very well. And there are some excellent spatial analysis packages in R. Right. So yeah. the fact that we are being bound to this archaic, uh, uh, you know, two, three decade old archaism, I think is is a shame. Yeah. Well, I have many thoughts on, on this that cannot be said on air. <laughs> promptly, you know, once we've stopped recording, I will. I, I, I have I have things to say. 
Uh, but for the time being, I think we will have to stop here. Yes, indeed. So, yeah. So, okay. Um, this is Monkey Mind. This episode is episode 13. Yes, episode 13. And uh, the show notes for this episode can be found at monkeymind.xyz slash... Zero one three, and we will see you whenever we have time. <laughs> whenever we feel like it, right? Consider yeah, this a privilege. Point, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's it's like hello internet levels of of um of posting. It's like whenever CGP Grey feels like it, there will be That's an right. episode of Hello Internet. Yes. Yeah. All right. Nice. Okay. Till next time. Till next time. <laughs>